Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome to an hour dedicated to the notion of enlightenment. An hour for inquiry and reflection, all in a part or an, an effort to understand exactly what enlightenment means and what it is to be enlightened. An hour devoted to exploring the edge of consciousness and all that is implied thereof. An hour that recognizes the nature of the subjective experience as being at least as important as the objective reality we reside within. Indeed, an hour for the open-minded willing to examine their deepest beliefs, an hour designed to help us go further inward and perhaps challenge some of those old ideas about the world we live in and the people we have become. This is an hour where we strive to evaluate knowledge as inseparable from the total experience of reality. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. <clears throat> All right, each year, each week, I should say, each year, too, I read a few of your letters as our way of paying respect to the importance you play in helping us to shape our show and improve it in every way. Over the holidays, we received many cards and letters, and I want to thank you all for that. Most of the letters were general notes of praise for our show, and I'm truly appreciative. Many of you must have been checking on the wonderful collection of archive shows here at Hay House Radio because we received a number of emails about some of the older shows as well. Claudia wrote, quote, thanks for the provocative enlightenment show, especially the October 26, 2010 show. A very well done explanation and sampling of your product, method and testimonials. Brenda wrote, I really enjoy your program on Hay House Radio. I look forward to your free MP3s and the great results that always happen. Uh, Okay, now, great results I know will happen. Claudia and Brenda are referring to our patented InterTalk technology. And remember, if you go to eldentaylor.com, you can download your free MP3s. It's just our way of paying it forward. Peter wrote, I was inspired by the simple techniques explained in your book, Mind Programming. And for the first time, I felt without doubt what the meaning of truth is. Thank you. Well, thank you, Peter. And I'd remind you all, Mind Programming is in paperback, comes with a free CD, it is about $10 at Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com. Rosie wrote, Happy New Year's, Eldon. I know you will uh, make it a fantastic one. I think you are the best. I remember checking you out at a hay, at hay House and thinking, I'm not so sure. But entered your conference, and who would have thought? You blew it out of the water. You can't judge a book by the cover. You are amazing. Thank you, Eldon. Okay, now, thank you, Rosie, but I have to admit, uh, I'm not quite sure how to take that one. What do you think, Ravinder? I mean, what does my cover say? Does it say stay away or something? Your cover is gorgeous. Absolutely perfect to me. All right, well, (laughs) we're glad you came, Rosie. Elizabeth wrote, I am grateful for your wonderful program, Provocative Enlightenment on A-House Radio. You have the most terrific guests and leave me wanting to learn more. I usually listen to you via your rebroadcast and will continue to do so. Well, thank you, Elizabeth, and thanks again to all of you. We could take the entire show today just reading your wonderful comments and letters, uh, but that's that's all the time we're going to take. We've got a great guest. We've got a couple of books that we're going to discuss. That said, I do invite you to opine by leaving comments on my website, emailing me at eldon at eldontaylor.com, and or joining me on Facebook. 
I do read all of your letters, and they do impact our programming. So once again, thank you very much. Now to today's show. I hear all of the time about so-called hocus-pocus. Among the many people that I interface with, there are some that are both scientists, physicists indeed, and atheists. One that I know likes to brag about the difference between those that believe and those that do not, according to a calculus of intelligence. Among his favorite quotes is this one by Sam Harris, chief executive officer of Project Reason. Quote, although it is possible to be a scientist and still believe in God, as some scientists seem to manage it, there is no question that an engagement with scientific thinking tends to erode rather than support religious faith. Taking the U.S. population as an example, most polls show that about 90% of the general public believes in a personal God. Yet 93% of the members of the National Academy of Sciences do not. This suggests that there are few modes of thinking less congenial to religious faith than science is. Close quote. To that, I have often heard Richard Dawkins quoted in some form or another, such as this quote from the Telegraph. Quote, but what are we to make of Richard Dawkins' point in the God delusion that Mensa, the Society for People with High IQs, has published an article concluding that of 43 studies of the relationship between intelligence and religious belief since 1927, all but four have found an inverse relation. Or of his statistic that only 3.3% of the fellows of the Royal Society believe that a personal God exists. Close quote. One of the ideas that proliferates in spiritual circles, New Age circles today, has to do with how hard science is coming on board with ancient philosophical and metaphysical propositions. And, of course, there are a few good scientists, you know, the likes of which we have, we've hosted, like Tom Campbell, uh, Rupert Sheldrake, uh, the Amit Goswamis, the Michael Talbots, the Ken Wilbers of the world, and so forth. But the vast majority of scientists simply are not on board. It is a mistake to attempt to argue science in favor of metaphysics with a scientist, unless you are yourself a scientist first in the field of debate, like quantum physics. Arguing for the uncertainty principle as an example of consciousness entering the world of manifestation will only yield 10 other possible explanations to, together with an exposition on why this is so misunderstood, quote, by the lay masses. Some may say, and well, perhaps it should be that way. After all, that science do science and spirituality or metaphysics do metaphysics. The problem with this solution is that it is both too simple and too troubling. It is problematic to infer something about the universe that runs afoul of science. Pope John Paul II pointed this out in his work on the relationship between faith and reason. So we sometimes stumble on, hoping to find more scientists that will agree with how we think the universe must work. Well, as you've heard me say before, there are those that use the words of science and fail to understand the underlying principles. However, not all that find the supernatural a real possibility are less bright folks, as Harris and Dawkins might like us to believe. 
Indeed, I would and have suggested there are both methodological and psychological reasons that exist for the numbers attributed to those who, in their words, quote, do not believe in a personal God, close quote. But then that's another show. We are fortunate around here to be able to bring you bright minds with excellent credentials and at the same time willing to challenge those who would hide behind science or use science inappropriately. Our guest today is one such exception to the numbers quoted for Mensa. In fact, his work directly faces the charges of skeptics and then quite systematically demonstrates their flaws and inadequacies, literally decimating the bulk of them. Educated at Oxford, he holds two degrees, one in philosophy and another in economics, and he teaches internationally. Our friend Rupert Sheldrake wrote the foreword to his book, Parapsychology and the Skeptics, and Dr. Sheldrake had this to say about the book. Now, quote, A masterly guide to the frontiers of science, belief, and exploration. Close quote. Chris's newest book is titled Science in the Near-Death Experience, How Consciousness Survives Death. We are going to talk a little about both today, so let's meet our guest and welcome him to the show. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Chris Carter. How you doing, Eldon? I'm doing great, sir, and it's wonderful to have you join us. You're in Columbia, I understand. That's right. I'm in Cartagena right now. <laughs> in your hotel room, and, and, and we really appreciate you going out of your way to, to join us. Uh, Let's begin, if we can, Chris. I mean, you heard the setup piece. And when I think of people like, bless him, Christopher Hitchens, because he's dealing with cancer right now, or Richard Dawkins and so forth, I think of scientism, not skepticism. What's your take on this? Well, these people call themselves skeptics. They like to use that label. But genuine skepticism involves the process of suspending belief, not the refusal of belief. Um, it's the practice of doubt, not the practice of denial. And so most of these uh, people are not genuine skeptics. They're, they're phony skeptics. Very well said. I'm going to quote you on that one. Uh, listen, before we get into your books and, and your research, and I love both books, by the way. They are terrific books, and I'm going to tell the listening audience out there, you want to get them. I mean, they are really good well done. But before we get into that, there's a lot of chatter out there uh, today regarding the thousands of birds that have fallen out of the sky in Arkansas and Louisiana in the last couple of days, as well as the tens of thousands of fish that were reported dead just the day before in Arkansas. Have you heard about this? I heard a little bit. I have. I don't know any of the details. Well, and some are calling this an eschatological event, you know, the apocalypse, uh, end times is prophesied. The local establishment claims that the cause is probably some shock, like fireworks with the birds, some disease with the fish, and just a strange coincidence that they've happened together. My friend Nick Beckage, on the other hand, thinks that it might have been caused by HARP, the high-frequency active auroral research program that he he affectionately terms uh, the military's Pandora box. And that's because the birds' insides were pulverized and a very strong electromagnetic pulse might be capable of doing that. Do you, you're the parapsychology expert. There are a lot of folks that are thinking that this is a parapsychological phenomena. Do, do you have any opinion or take on this? Well, again, I consider myself a genuine skeptic. In other words, I suspend belief in the absence of evidence. So Good. given that I know very little about uh, what happened in Arkansas and the other places, uh, 
honestly have to say I just don't know. Yeah, I don't either, but it's certainly an interesting question. And I I, I, I am a skeptic as well, but I, I think that statement about I must suspend disbelief to believe that fireworks are, did this uh, is very appropriate here. All right, anyhow, Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you wrote Parapsychology and the Skeptics, and for that matter, why you followed up with your second book, Science and the Near-Death Experience, if you will. Well, I've always been interested in controversial issues, controversial issues in politics and science and in philosophy, and so it was just a natural progression that I would eventually become interested in um, psychical research and uh, the evidence for uh, life after death. Um, why I wrote the first book, why I wrote the second book, well, essentially, it all grew out of a lengthy debate that I had a few years ago with a very stubborn and dogmatic, uh, phony skeptic. I was frankly shocked by his ignorance and by the crudity of his arguments. And so I decided that a book was needed to examine the evidence uh, that the mind can function independently of the brain. That uh, you, you wouldn't like to tell us who the skeptic was, would you? I'd rather not give him any free publicity. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, then I, I'm just going to take on a couple here. Like you, I've had some dealings with many of those that call themselves skeptics that are really just closed-minded. I mean, they have their agendas, like uh, Paul Kurtz and Prometheus Press, as well Absolutely. as Psychop and the Skeptical Inquirer. So, and they're and they're very open. And indeed, I have quoted some of their materials in my books because, uh, you know, it is their stated. Uh, um, tactic uh, that a good belly laugh is worth a thousand syllogisms. And so if they can discredit you through some approach of that nature, that's the way they are to deal with it as opposed to deal with the facts. And I know that you're familiar with some of their their fudging of numbers and other things, supposedly. But what's your take on these people? And And Give us, you know, if you will, a good working definition of how you have used the word skeptic in your book. Well, again, a genuine skeptic is someone who suspends judgment in the absence of evidence. It's someone who says, show me the evidence. Um, a phony skeptic is somebody who um, starts off a conclusion and then denies the evidence. Essentially, I argued that the debate over psychic phenomena such as telepathy and the debate over the uh, existence of the near-death experience as a genuine separation of mind from body is not primarily about evidence. Most of these so-called skeptics simply ignore the evidence. When they can't ignore it, they dismiss it. And when they can't dismiss it, they try to suppress it. I give several examples of this in my, uh, my first book, Parapsychology and the Skeptics. The problem is that the evidence conflicts with their preconceived ideas of how the world works. And as such, it arouses strong passions in many of them. Um, we tend to view our opinions as possessions, and it's much easier to dismiss the evidence rather than change one's deeply held beliefs. Can you quote Schopenhauer in the very beginning of Parapsychology and the Skeptics? The quote goes, uh, truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as self-evident. How does that relate to parapsychology, and what stage do you think we're in today? Hmm. Probably in stage two, moving into stage three. 
Um, you have to remember, you mentioned the majority of scientists before. Um, it may very well be the majority of working scientists are leery or somewhat skeptical of the claims of organized religion. I mean, many of the claims of organized religion have been shown to be false or overly simple. But as I mentioned in my first book, um, several surveys have shown that most scientists um, accept likely existence of psychic abilities such as telepathy. I personally know of several neuroscientists who are almost convinced that the near-death experience is a genuine separation of mind from body. Um, you have to remember, as Rupert Sheldrake will tell you himself, most scientists are curious and open-minded. Um, these phony skeptics, the people at uh, PSYCOP and so forth, these are a very visible minority. Many of them are not even scientists. But um, most of the skeptics, the so-called skeptics, are um, either psychologists or philosophers. Um, and the problem is, is that uh, their thinking is partly ideological and it's partly wedded to classical physics, which has been known to be fundamentally flawed for over a century. And so um, they're simply ignorant of the fact that uh, Many prominent physicists, such as Costa de Beauregard and the Nobel Prize winner Brian Josephson, David Baum, several others, have gone on record as saying that there's absolutely nothing in new physics, quantum mechanics, that will be compromised by the existence of psychic abilities such as telepathy. Indeed, there's been several physicists, such as uh, Evan Harris Walker, who have proposed models of how psychic abilities such as telepathy may work and how um, the mind may interact with the brain based upon commonly accepted quantum mechanical physics, quantum mechanical principles. You know, for what it's worth, and I'm going to throw this in before I ask you um, to flesh out part of that uh, answer, my own experience suggests that, you know, when, when you look at the uh, way most of these uh, questionnaires are formed, it's, it's always the question uh, having to do with a personal God. And this personal God, as you refer to, uh, is the personal God built into traditional religion. So it's this personal God that is there, uh, that can intercede on your behalf, that is constantly tending all the matters, that is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, etc. and so forth. And when you do take that apart, it is very difficult for a thinking person to accept that uh, as an overall definition. And so the question itself is posed in such a way that it predisposes the response. And then there's also a good deal of peer pressure that has to do with the environment. Skeptical Inquirer has a wide uh, distribution, and it's on every major campus in America. So there is a certain amount of of uh, hesitation to come forward, if you will, uh, with your beliefs. That's been my experience. Would that uh, face with what you have yourself experienced, Chris? Yeah. Well, the skeptical um, inquirer is, should really be thought of as uh, PSYCOP or CSIs, as they're now known, CSIs, yeah, organ, of pro organ of Propaganda. Right. I mean, one of, one of the uh, editors of the book was quoted in my first book as writing that... Uh, the purpose of Skeptical Inquirer is not to consider the best evidence for anomalous claims, but rather to argue against them. Rather
whether these, you know, these are people that have made up their minds and uh, they're defending their preconceived ideas against uh, disagreeable data. But um, again, uh, strenuously denying disagreeable data, data that disagrees with our pet theories, with our preconceived ideas, is the defining characteristic of pseudoscience. That's a fact. All right. Well, let's let's take on some of that data. Uh, your book, uh, your first book, uh, Parapsychology and the Skeptics. You, you know, you begin by looking at uh, at data. Uh, well, actually, you begin by looking at skeptics and their arguments, and then we move into into the data and the comparison. Tell us about uh, the difference between Ryan's initial card hits, the, the data you data that came out of that, and the the Gansfeld experiments where, uh, you know, we basically put a person in isolation. Uh, tell us about what you found in, as a result of that research when you, when you compiled the data. Well, um, the research of J.B. Ryan, uh, he was one of the first to apply rigorous experimental techniques to the investigation of telepathy and so forth. Um, he gathered a great deal of very uh, strong evidence. He really impressed people. Um, back in 1951, the psychologist Donald Hebb wrote this. Here's a quote. Why do we not accept ESP as a psychological fact? Ryan has offered enough evidence to have convinced us on almost any other issue. Then he goes on and he says, Personally, I do not accept ESP for a moment because it does not make sense. My external criteria, both of physics and of physiology, Say that ESP is not a fact, despite the behavioral evidence that has been reported. I cannot mm-hmm. see what other basis my colleagues have for rejecting it. Ryan may still turn out to be right, improbable as I think that is, and my own rejection of his view is, in the literal sense, prejudice. Now, that was written in 1951, and basically what he was saying is that he was saying that um, if ESP was a fact, then physics and physiology would be wrong. But again, Hebb Hebb was a psychologist, and uh, he simply was not ignorant of modern physics. And there's nothing in modern physics that rules out the existence of telepathy. Right. And as you said, it actually implies that possibility. And and, and indeed, I've seen arguments that mathematically it could have been deduced if it hadn't been uh, actually discovered. Uh, I I assume you concur with that. Well, um, it's debatable, but... uh, uh, there, there is, a, as I said before, most of these um, skeptics are psychologists and philosophers. Um, they've be done, nice to also, the psychologists, will you, Guy? Pardon me? <laughs> I say be nice to the psychologists, will you, Guy? I'm not saying they're all bad. Um, they've, when they've <laughs> done these, I mentioned the surveys that they've done asking uh, scientists whether they think that um, extrasensory perception is impossible, a small possibility, a likely possibility, proven beyond reasonable doubt. And I said that most scientists, I think it's around 70%, say that it's right. at least a likely possibility. But when you break it down by discipline, the majority of those saying that it's either impossible or highly unlikely are psychologists, and to a lesser extent, biologists. The ones okay, we'll talk about that when we come back. We're coming up on a hard break here. All right. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment on Hay House Radio. My guest today is Chris Carter, and we're discussing his books, uh, Psychology and the Skeptic, as well as, and we'll get to that in the next half hour, Science and the Near-Death Experience. Uh, 
great books. Check out the links uh, on the website, eldentaylor.com forward slash chat. We'll take you right to them. We'll be right back after these words from some of our friends. Have you talked to yourself lately? What does that inner voice say? Are you constantly hearing negative feedback? Ready for a change? Inner Talk, Eldon Taylor's patented subliminal technology, can do just that. Change your inner self-talk. Turn off the negative by replacing it with positive affirmations. Inner Talk has been researched at universities such as Stanford and by governments around the world and has been proven effective at priming your self-talk. Armed with a new positive outlook, you'll find everything becomes easier. From losing weight to stop smoking, giving presentations to riding horses, learn new things to being a powerful salesperson. Choose your title for change today. Visit www.innertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. Innertalk.com. Every day, every moment, we face choices. Yet, how many of those choices are truly our own? Are you ready to step onto the path of discovery? Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestseller, Choices and Illusions, now revised, updated, and expanded. Eldon combines provocative information, scientific research, and his own life's journey into a powerful message that we have the power to change. All we must do is be willing to choose to take the chance and change. Get your copy today from all bookstores. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're discussing two books by Chris Carter, Parapsychology and the Skeptic, and his all-new Science and the Near-Death Experience. But before we get back to today's show, I want to invite you to like our all-new Facebook fan page for Provocative Enlightenment Radio. Go to Facebook, please, and and join us there. That's where we're going to do all of the announcing for what's coming up on uh, on Provocative Enlightenment. And um, you not only receive special announcements, but we're going to have some incentives from time to time as our way of thanking you for your support. I would also like uh, like to invite you to join me on Facebook while you're there. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter. Let's get back to the show. Before the break, uh, indeed, just before we uh, went to break, uh, my good guest, Chris Carter, was uh, was pointing out that uh, psychologists tend to uh, make up the vast majority of professional uh, uh, atheists, skeptics. Isn't that, uh, did I get that right, Chris? Because I, uh- I tell you what. I, uh, I, I did a quick search on that while we were at break, and I can't find any data su- to support it. And I don't want to waste any time in the show. I'm a fellow in the American Psychotherapy Association, so obviously I have some interest here. Uh, but I would love to see that data that breaks out that shows uh, that among those scientists that uh, are atheists, the large proportion is uh, psychologists. Let's, let's not, leave that. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't say atheist. I said um skeptics or phony skeptics, if you will, of subject of parapsychology. Now, both, right. of those, both of those surveys are mentioned in my first book, Parapsychology and the Skeptics. I mentioned that fact. 
Yeah, well, I, I, you know, maybe I missed that, but that's all right. Let's 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 go to book two. Can, can, uh, I, can I read some? Can I read a quote by the great psychologist Gardner Murphy? Uh, absolutely, pres- of course. Okay, he was president of the American Psychological Association and later uh-huh. of the American Society for Psychical Research. So he was mm-hmm. obviously not a phony skeptic. And in 1968, in a speech, he urged his fellow psychologists to become better acquainted with modern physics. He wrote, and this is a quote. The difficulty is at the level of physics, not at the level of psychology. Psychologists may be a little bewildered when they encounter modern physicists who take these phenomena in stride. In fact, take them much more seriously than psychologists do, saying, as physicists, they are no longer bound by the types of Newtonian energy distribution, inverse square laws, etc., with which scientists used to regard themselves as tightly bound. Psychologists probably will witness a period of slow but definite erosion of the blandly exclusive attitude that has offered itself as the only appropriate scientific attitude in this field. The data from parapsychology will almost certainly in harmon- will be almost certainly in harmony with general psychological principles and will be assimilated rather easily into the systematic framework of psychology as a science when once the imagined appropriateness of Newtonian physics is put aside and modern physics replaces it. Okay, and that quote is from the 60s. And and yes. I would suggest to you that that is already materialized, that, you, you know, you're you're half a century behind bringing Not among psychologists, the, not among psychologists. You, you, yeah, among psychologists. You know, Christopher Hitchens is not a psychologist. Dawkins is a biologist. Uh, Kurtz is not a psychologist. You know, Randy is not a psychologist. What we have out there today, uh, most psychologists do embrace the quantum. Most uh, most are uh, indeed uh, they tend to be much more supportive of extrasensory perception, psi phenomena, parapsychology, uh, near death experiences, uh, the whole spiritual gamut. This this humanistic idea disappeared by and large uh, back in the seventies. So. Um, you know, not to well, disagree fact- with you, but to give you my side uh, of what uh, what I see there, uh, we don't have the same kind of skeptics today that existed in the '60s. But that uh, okay, said, right. again, let's 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 move on to your newest book. All right, I do agree with your principles of skepticism. A skeptic is indeed absolutely someone that uh, suspends judgment. Uh, true skepticism, actually, philos, Greek skepticism, admits that they can never know anything, ever, for certain. Yeah. But we'll forget that kind of Greek skepticism and indeed think about a skeptic that is willing to examine evidence, as you put it forward in, in your great book, Parapsychology and Skeptics, in Science and the Near-Death Experience. We, uh, you continue with... Uh, your approach to uh, phenomena, if you will. And, and I can see your predisposition to want to take on the controversial material. Not long ago, we had doctors Raymond Moody and John Turner on the show, and we discussed NDEs. And, of course, Moody is given credit for even, you know, for the term NDE. As you know, and as you alluded to briefly, skeptics' chief argument regarding this amounts to an explanation that's generally based on some electrochemical dying process and oxygen starvation or the likes of that. Uh, In fact, uh, Paul Kurtz, who we've talked about, says it's a biological basis for minds, period, end of quotation, get used to it, you know, for life, uh, 
Uh, that's all there is. How do you um, treat these uh, uh, objections? Uh, wh- what did you find to the approach to their criticism, and, and how would you rebut it today? Well, Kurtz's, the quote from Kurtz, which you just mentioned, is really a statement of his faith. It's not a statement of fact. But True. Right. But again, yes, the uh, materialists use a variety of uh, materialist explanations to try to explain away the near-death experience, such as oxygen deprivation, oh, the effect of seizures, and so forth. Um, let's consider the first one, oxygen deprivation. That's probably the single most common uh, materialist objection that's put forth to explain the near-death experience. So, but the effects of oxygen deprivation are well known. They've been known for decades. Mountain climbers often experience it. Um, pilots flying at high altitude have experienced it. And it's well known that as the brain is, is deprived of oxygen, it ceases to function properly. When blood flow to the brain is cut off, as for instance in cardiac arrest, the brain suffers from oxygen deprivation. And it's well known that as the brain suffers from oxygen deprivation, suffers from oxygen deprivation, it ceases to function properly. As the oxygen supply is reduced, the person becomes progressively more disoriented and confused. And this is in sharp contrast to the clarity of thought and perception described over and over again in the reports of near-death experiencers. Um, Pilots in training regularly undergo oxygen deprivation in flight simulators. Um, in order to make sure they can get their masks on in time. Those who fail don't have near-death experiences. They experience confusion and disorientation, uh, sometimes trying to land their simulated planes on the top of simulated clouds before they lose consciousness. And in my second book, Science and New-Death Experience, I mention a report from a man who experienced both oxygen deprivation um, while flying at high altitude as a pilot with the Royal Air Force, and who later, years later, had a near-death experience as a result of a heart attack. He was a man named Alan Pring, and Mm. uh, after he had his near-death experience, he wrote, and I quote, I found myself floating along a dark tunnel, peacefully and calmly, but wide awake and aware. I know that the tunnel experience has been attributed to the brain being deprived of oxygen, But as an ex-pilot who has experienced lack of oxygen at altitude, I can state that for me, there was no similarity. On the contrary, the whole near-death experience from beginning to end was crystal clear. So I don't think that oxygen deprivation even comes close to explaining any of the features of the near-death experience. You personed your head, of course, uh, theories about... uh anatomical basis for religious experience and one of the objections that I've heard about NDEs has to do with how the brain shuts down and the order in which different uh, shall we say compartments since uh, we think of it that way today Uh, if, if you had an opportunity to look at any of those arguments or do you have an idea about that well those are um, you mentioned two slightly different things actually um, Persinger has maintained that he can replicate uh, the effects of the near-death experience by applying electrical discharges to the temporal lobes of subjects using something called, uh, well, basically a helmet. 
Now, what he's trying to do is he's trying to use the explanation that seizures may be responsible for the uh, effects of the near-death experience. Because sometimes when people suffer from oxygen deprivation, um, their brain generates abnormal electrical discharge, discharges resulting in seizures. And uh, seizures in the temporal lobes of the brain may indeed cause auditory and visual hallucinations, memory flashbacks, and so forth. And uh, so these seizures are thought by some researchers, such as Persinger, to be a primary cause of the near-death experience. Persinger is a psychologist at Laurentian University in Canada, and um, he's tried to mimic temporal lobe seizure phenomena by um, electromagnetic stimulation. And as I said before, he's boasted that he can replicate all the major components of the near-death experience. But I discuss uh, his work at length in my book, and if you look at his data, the claim is simply not true. The major effects his subjects report are not traveling down a tunnel, leaving their body, meeting deceased relatives, hearing beautiful music, or anything like that. <laughs> Rather, they're tingling sensations and vibrations. Yeah, I had to have one of those God helmets, and it just simply gives you a headache, but okay. Well, and not uh, only that, but I'd like to go for, I'd like to discuss a little, this a little bit further. In 2004, okay. Persinger's research was dealt a serious blow when a team in Sweden attempted to replicate his findings using equipment borrowed from his lab. Right. And uh, what they did, it was a team headed by a fellow named Per Gonquist. They tested 89 undergraduate students, some who were exposed to the magnetic field, wearing the helmet, and some who were not. In other words, sometimes the helmet was turned on, sometimes it wasn't. They used a double-blind protocol. That is, neither the people running the experiment nor the subjects themselves knew um, what the experiment was testing and whether any particular subject was part of the test group or the control group. Not only that, they also consulted Persinger's collaborator, Stanley Corrin, to ensure that conditions for replication were optimal. So it was almost a perfect replication, if not completely perfect. So what did they find? The Swedish team found no effect from the magnetic fields whatsoever. The only characteristic that predicted what the subjects reported was personality. The subjects who were rated highly suggestible on the basis of a questionnaire reported strange experiences when they were wearing the helmet, whether the current was on or whether the current was off. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. <clears throat> When you... um, can I, can I say one more thing in regards to seizures? Oh, of course. Of okay, course. And so, but Persinger's research is an attempt to um, uh, stim- simulate electrical seizures in the temporal lobe by applying electrical uh, charges. So, but the, question, the real question is, how closely do actual seizures resemble the near-death experience? Well, exactly what I was going to ask you. <laughs> good, okay. So in my, in my second book, Science and the Near-Death Experience, I have a quote from a fellow named Ernst Roden. He's the medical director of the Epilepsy Center of Michigan and the professor of neurology at Wayne State University. And here's a quote from Ernst Roden. He writes, the hallmarks and nuclear components of near-death experiences are a sensation of peace or even bliss, the knowledge of having died, and as a result, being no longer limited to the physical body. In spite of having seen hundreds of patients, with temporal lobe seizures during three decades of professional life, I have never come across those symptoms as part of a seizure. Pretty well says it, doesn't it? Now, listen, Dr. Moody told us about 
patterns that accompany NDEs, and you're implying some of these patterns as we go along here, the light and the bliss, et cetera. Uh, have you found that to hold uh, across all cultures? Um, yes, very much so. Um, in my book, I have a whole chapter dealing with the near-death experience across cultures. I examine reports from China, India, and uh, tribal societies, such as the uh, Native American, and the Maori in New Zealand. Um, the main similarities across reports from different cultures um, appear to be out-of-body experiences and um, encounters with otherworldly realms and their inhabitants. Um, other features, such as the life review in the tunnel, uh, appear to be culture-specific. Life reviews are found in Western Chinese and East Indian experiences. They don't seem to be reported, or at least not very often, cultures and societies of hunter-gatherers. Okay. Yeah, okay. We, you know, I've been hogging all this time. We've got um, callers, and we've also got many questions out of the chat room. I'm going to go to a chat room question here. Uh, can you ask Chris uh, about his third book, uh, what it will reveal? Now, I understand you have a third book coming, and, and I was going to say that to the end, but your third book is going to be about child children and their memories. Is that not correct? Uh, that's not exactly correct. My well, well tell book. us what, what, about your third book and what you believe it uh, reveals about survival. Okay. Well, my second book examined the evidence for survival from near-death experiences and deathbed visions. Um, deathbed visions being experiences people often have uh, just before they die and they do not come mm -hmm. back. Um, I argued, well, I argued at the end of my second book that there are even stronger forms of evidence for survival than the near-death experience and the deathbed visions. So in my third book, I'm going to look at some of these other stronger forms of evidence um, and critically evaluate them. And that third book, uh, I mean, the basis for that evidence, is it going to be what? Reincarnation? Children who remember past lives, apparitions, and uh, alleged uh, communication from the dead via medium. I see. So you, and you have that one underway? That one will be published in 2011. In 2011. Soon. Yes. Let's, let's go to the telephone and take... Um, Line number one, Bill from Chicago. You're on the air with well, hi Chris there. Carter. How are you doing? Good to talk to you again, Elder Bill Sweet. And I just hi, Bill. Hi, howdy, howdy. It's very interesting. Now, good, good to have you back on the phone. Bill Sweet is a parapsychologist. Uh, Chris, do you happen to know Bill? I don't. How you doing, Bill? Uh, oh, pretty good. He's well, been well, on our show before, and he's done a fair deal of research. What What, what are your questions, Bill? Well, I was wondering, it just, I, I've written about skeptics, and I was just, it seems to be that people are built that way. Some people seem to come into this world and they're skeptics. They can have an extraordinary experience and still be an skeptic. And I was wondering, it, two people can see the same phenomenon, and they just they decide to see it one way or another. And I was just wondering if you've run into that. Well, um, again, I don't consider the, the people that we're talking about on this show to be genuine skeptics. I consider them to be phony skeptics. Um, because I think I think a genuine skeptic is somebody who has an open mind, but says, "Wait, I want to examine the evidence before I before I make up my mind." A phony okay. skeptic is somebody who first makes up their mind and then refuses to be uh, have their position altered by any amount of evidence. 
Um, yeah, I certainly do think that some people are more psychologically predisposed towards the sort of phony skepticism or yeah. dogmatic thinking than others. Um, I think to some extent it's a natural human tendency to um, um, resist changing one's strongly held opinions. Uh, having said that, I certainly think that some people are more afflicted with that condition than others. Well, very good. I appreciate that. I uh, have heard, and it's my opinion, that the near-death experiences could be one of the strongest evidences uh, for them because I've heard a number of people talk who were former atheists and former skeptics who themselves had near-death experiences. And then I hear them talk, and they say, I can't believe what I used to believe. I have to, I could share it with you, but I can't tell my friends. I can't tell my people I work with because they all think I'm that way. And I still want them to think I'm that way, but I can tell you, you can tell an audience of strangers that they now believe this is real, but they can't talk to the people they're close to. It's a, if, that's a, I've seen that many times. That's a strange phenomenon all itself. Hmm. If, if you run into that, where somebody will tell a group of strangers they believe in it now because they experience it, but they, they, but they still can't deal with their own people that are close to them. You can't tell them. No, I can't say that I have come across that, but it wouldn't surprise me. But I have, Bill. I, I have run into, I, I, I have a couple of acquaintances that are good. They're good scientists. They're tenured uh, people that, uh, for all intent and purposes, are very cautious, uh, to say it uh, modestly, very cautious around their peers about uh, any kind of statement that has to do with religiosity, spirituality, after, you know, after uh, life and so sure. forth. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I and I believe that there is uh, peer pressure that is brought to bear upon them. We dismiss, as a case in point earlier, skeptical inquirer, call it out for what it is. Nevertheless, it has a tremendous influence over uh, serious researchers uh, uh, in a number of institutions because nearly every university in America receives that uh, subscription, and uh, so. It, if if you happen to be a scientist, you're going to be reading about um, this, that, and the other through the lens of the skeptic, and not the true skeptic, but uh, well, the lens e- of... Yeah, I think, I think it's easy to overstate the influence of that magazine. Um, there was an article written recently by... Um, oh, I can't remember his name. Guy... Uh, <laughs> I should know this. Anyway, there's an article recently written. Um, it's available on the Internet. It's called... Has Psychop lost the Thirty Years' War? Psychop was founded about thirty years ago, right. and uh, what this fellow did was he examined the evidence for the portion of people who believe in things, believe in the existence of things such as telepathy, then versus now, to see if Psychop has had any effect. And uh, he, he mentioned a survey done by Psychop or CSI, as they're now known, just recently, and what they did was they, they wanted to see if there was a correlation between the amount of education a person has and their likelihood that they will accept the reality of abilities such as telepathy. So they went to various universities and they asked, uh, you know, first-year students, second-year, third-year students, people who had a bachelor's degree, then people who were in master's and Ph.D. programs. And what they found was that there was an inverse correlation I'm sorry, there was, a direct mm. cor- there was a direct correlation. The more education these students seemed to have, the more likely they were to accept the reality of psychic abilities such as telepathy. And this, of course, uh, you can imagine what Psychop or CSI thought about this. 
very they might, disheartening. Somebody must have gotten something wrong, they thought. <laughs> yeah, boy, and I would like to see that one because that runs contrary yeah. to all of the data that's out there and the data that they like to publish and the data, for example, that we discussed in the setup piece coming in, you know. Well, uh, I, don't, I, I don't think it's... I don't think it the Mensa counter- studies is a case in point. Mensa. I, I, the only thing a high IQ indicates is the ability to do well in IQ tests. <laughs> I mean, seriously, there's even there's even evidence that uh, that uh, what their what a high what IQ test reward is effectively uh, uh, superficial thinking. Um, okay, but the but but the minute we say a correlation between intelligence and a belief, we're talking we about know, IQ. No, we're not. We and I, IQ is not synonymous with intelligence. The IQ test is misnamed. We don't really know exactly what intelligence is, but it's the ability to solve problems. But it's not right, the ability well, to solve trivial problems. Well, ironically, uh, I have a friend who's in Mensa who is an atheist, and he does believe in psychic phenomena. So I can't believe I'm throwing that out there. <laughs> One guy he has all that in him, so that's pretty wild. Right, but my point, my original point was not a correlation between intelligence and belief, a correlation between the amount of education a person has and their likelihood of believing in the existence of abilities such as telepathy. Psychop, CSI, found that positive correlation, which, of course, greatly dismayed them. And they, of course, came up with all kinds of BS explanations, like perhaps uh, the grad students are smoking more dope and things like that. Chris, we're out of time. Okay. We're, we're just out of time. Listen, I uh, please email me that uh, when you remember the author. I, I have to find. I, I want to read that one, okay? Uh, you've been listening to Chris Carter, and we've been talking about two wonderful books. Chris, in, in 20 seconds, how can our listening audience stay in touch with you? How, where's the best place for them to follow you, and where can they get their books? Well, um, I guess the best place would probably be the uh, my second website. It's got a name same as my book so it's triple w science and the near death experience.com um my books are also available in barnes and noble and of course on amazon we appreciate you being here today sir we've come to the end of another hour of provocative enlightenment and i want to thank all of you for joining us and uh, i hope you enjoyed our show and we truly wish you the just the grandest new year uh, we hope you'll join us again next week same time and same place And if you have comments on our show, do let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters.